Okay, we can let the uh, children be dismissed uh, for junior church. And as they go, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. Book of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Book of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do so as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This morning I'm going to begin a discussion in our church life on the topic of Giving, but I think the better word to define Christian giving is the word that's used frequently in Scripture, and that is the word generosity. Generosity is something that should characterize the Christian church. Uh, As you sing praises to God and express gratitude for what He's done, as you begin to grasp more and more fully the work of Christ on Calvary's cross, I think you will begin to realize that Christians should be the most generous people on earth. We should have lives that are marked by and set apart by the nature of our generosity. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to share with you some statistics that I found absolutely shocking and incredible. And I am certain there are, th- there are things that you will never hear uh, on the news uh, as you turn on your TV and listen to uh, you know, world news or United States news or whatever it might be. There are truths about giving that emerge that to me are incredibly fascinating. And I... I don't want to get into those statistics this morning. I want to share them with you next Sunday morning because I was amazed as I dug in and did some research just on charitable giving. The bottom line is this, and I'll give you more details on this, but the bottom line is that evangelical Christians, people who believe that the blood of Christ cleanses from sin, are far and away, sometimes up to four times more generous than the average person in our country. Now, you haven't heard that on the news lately, have you? Okay, I was when I the more I looked into it and dug into it, I was stunned. And so as we look at the topic of generosity as Christians, as people who believe that our salvation is dependent upon the work of Christ, his shed blood, his death, his burial, his resurrection. As we look at it, I I, want to do it, as Paul says in this text, as a means of encouragement to our walk with Christ. 
not to create guilt, not to manipulate, because what you will always find is that kind of manipulation that makes you feel bad about what you have, so therefore you should give, does not have staying power. It won't produce a lasting change in your relationship to your material possessions. So the question I want to ask this morning is this. How should distinctive Christian generosity be encouraged in the context of the church? Okay, how should distinctive Christian generosity, a generosity that will cause the church to stand out in its culture, how can we encourage that in a way that doesn't manipulate or cause guilt? And I come up with three options. One is we could use the methodology of coercion. Make people feel bad about what they have by telling them how much they have, and then maybe they'll be willing to give up a little bit of what they have if they feel a little bit of guilt, of social guilt or pressure. And as a result, they may begin to give something. What you will find as you look at the statistics is that that approach is completely ineffective in the long term. And we'll come back to that later. Second thing we can do is this. We just get up and say, hey, you need to give. We can, instead of using coercion and manipulative tactics, just say, you know what? God says you should give, therefore you should give. And at one level, I think every Christian is going to have to concede to the fact that the Word of God certainly encourages that we support the work that He is seeking to do in the world. So we have an obligation, and God in one sense does request and command this of us, but it's not all that he does. And the last thing that we could do, which I think is also ineffective, is we can manipulate people. And there are many churches in America that practice this tactic. Promise people that if they give, then God is obligated to pour resources back into their life. Okay, in uh, theological terms, we call it the prosperity gospel. It promises that the more you give, the more you will get. And the end goal of giving then becomes what? Me. Okay, that's twisted. Okay, it's manipulative, it's crass, and it is, above everything else, unbiblical. And it is an offense to the cross of Christ. So without using coercion, without using demand, and without using manipulation, how is it that Paul encourages the church in Corinth which has a lot of things going for it in a correct way. If you look down in verse 7, he says, notice what he says. He says, as you excel in everything, in your faith, in your speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in your love for us. So he's able to look at this church and say, you as a church have many things moving in the right direction. And he's coming alongside of them in regards to this issue and encouraging them to cultivate generosity. When you, when, you, when you look at this passage of Scripture, you will find that Paul's ultimate objective is Christian generosity. That's what he is seeking to encourage. Okay, He's going to encourage it by doing something that may look manipulative if you don't understand the nature of biblical Christianity. Look down at verse 8. He says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by what? By comparing it with the generosity of others. So what is Paul's kind of tact or approach that he's going to use to encourage generosity in the church? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to hold up biblical examples of generosity. And there will be two in this passage of scripture. 
Okay, two, two means by which he is going to encourage the church to be, generous, to be generous. And you will not find coercion, you won't find manipulation, and you won't find demand in what Paul says. So as we move through this passage of Scripture this morning, all I'm simply going to do is make observations in terms of how Paul is using the churches in Macedonia as an example of Christian generosity and as a means of encouraging greater generosity amongst Christians. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself as we go through this. Am I generous? Am I generous? Okay, and I, the answer to that question is a little bit difficult. Can I start by making an assumption? Most of us, by God's definition, are probably not generous. We, we have a heart that is touched by needs. But if you say, is my life characterized in a pervasive way by the Spirit of Christ and by the Spirit of the churches in Macedonia? Am I, in nature, naturally generous? The answer for all of us, I think, is going to be, no, I'm not naturally generous. I'm naturally self-centered. I naturally am concerned about what I'm keeping for myself and for the enhancement of my life and my own family's life. I was challenged as I read through this text. I was challenged as I studied through this text. And I think as we look at the, the theme of generosity and look at the means by which Paul is encouraging it by observing what was happening in another church family, I think our hearts and our giving will also be encouraged. Let's look at verse 1 then as we begin. Paul says, now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, the Macedonian churches are churches in the area of Thessalonica, Philippi, uh, Galatia, the, the books of the New Testament, the book of Philippians, the book of Thessal Thessalonians, uh, the book of Colossae, written to the Colossians. Those are churches that were in, were in an area called Macedonia, near modern-day Greece, as we would know it. Okay, They were in the midst of an incredible series of persecutions and afflictions. If you go back and read the early, the early church history in the time of the, uh, of the Caesars in Rome, you will find that there was much death and devastation that rained down on the church of Jesus Christ. These churches were caught up in that severe affliction. Out of that affliction, Paul says this, they became incredibly generous, and here's what was going on. In the main church in Jerusalem, really what was kind of the, 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 the mother church of the flagship church where the early church began, there was a famine in Jerusalem. And a message went out to the churches through the apostles that there were severe financial needs in Jerusalem. And the churches of Macedonia, in a sense, they distinguished themselves in their response to the tragedy in Jerusalem. Their giving was so stellar, so exemplary, that the Apostle Paul, when he wanted to encourage the Corinthians to participate in that offering, he points to the churches in Macedonia and says, see them? Here's what they're doing. And he lists a number of reasons or, or, or gives a number of observations that help us to see what generous Christianity should look like. And so this morning, my goal will be to give you some descriptions of the generosity that Paul lays out for us in verses 2 and following in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So Paul, under the inspiration of God, is encouraging biblical generosity. Let's uh, observe the characteristics of their generosity. Verse 2, he says this. He says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Well, that's a fascinating 
chemistry, if you will. Severe affliction and deep poverty coalesce together and produce rich generosity. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. That's not the way it happens in the world that I live in. In America, when there is a, a shaking of the financial structures of our country, you know what happened to giving? It plummeted. It plummeted. And nobody was thinking about, hey, you know what? I'm going to give less. It was instinctive for our country to shrink its charitable giving when our, our resources and our lifestyle became threatened. Not that we didn't have food on the table. Not that we didn't have a place to eat or a warm house. But that it might change our lifestyle. It caused giving to shrink. When you look at the church in Thessalonica, you find they're going through a severe trial and extreme poverty, and the result of that equation is rich generosity. And you have to ask the question, why? Why? And I think this is the first observation Paul is making. Rich generosity flows from deep joy and gratitude. Okay, the rich generosity that he accuses the churches in Macedonia of is not a result of the circumstances that they're facing. Things aren't going well, therefore they're willing to give more. No, the truth is they were being afflicted, and the words are superlative here. Severe persecution and radical poverty. That's the nature of the statements. And out of that was coming this rich generosity that isn't explicable from circumstances. You can't look at the churches of Macedonia, go for a visit and say, you know what, I absolutely understand why they're giving so much. They have it so good. You could not go there and come to that kind of a conclusion. So the question is, what is the source of this rich generosity? And Paul lays his finger on it. He says, they had a joy and gratitude in God that started with and was motivated by the grace of God. So in the middle of verse 1, he says, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. They have, by God, been given a unique gifting from God that is producing deep joy in the midst of poverty and suffering, and they are giving generously to the church. The grace of God, I think, is what Paul's pointing to. Understanding what Christ had done for them was producing in them such overwhelming joy. When I thought of this word, overwhelming joy, that comes out in... In verse 2, he says, it was overflowing joy. Here's what I thought of. I thought of opening a shaken bottle of soda. They had a joy that they, when you started to release it, it was uncontainable for them. I know the image of soda pouring out of a bottle and covering your table and getting on your floor and on your kids' clothes isn't a pretty picture. But when you think about the kind of joy that the church in Macedonia had had, it was an uncontainable exuberance because they understood the grace of God. I want you to notice how the word grace comes up in two other places. Look down in verse 6, second half of the verse. He says, he is encouraging them to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part, this act of generosity. Go down to the end of verse 7. He says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Three times the word grace is used to identify the kind of giving that was characteristic of the churches in Macedonia. It was a 
generosity that was flowing out of joy and gratitude, and that joy and gratitude was rooted in the grace of God. They understood that they were undeserving of the blessings that they had in Christ. And the result was realizing how undeserving they were. It caused them to make everything in their life available for the purposes of God so that others would know the plan and purpose of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you love Christ so much that your life is characterized by joy and gratitude when severe trial and deep poverty are present? I think all of us, and I'm just going to tell you this, I I was deeply convicted as I studied for this sermon because I don't know if I'm in any way like the church in Macedonia. I would like to think I am, but I am not sure that I am. I studied through this and just when things go a little bit wrong, do I get bugged out rather quickly? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Unfortunately, I do. My joy can be snuffed out in ways that are embarrassing to me and shocking. We need to get back to the cross of Christ and understand the grace of God that has been given and allow that grace to revive us so that we become like a shaking can of soda that we are bursting at the seams with a degree of exuberance and joy that is rooted in knowing our relationship with Christ is secure. I had the privilege in my younger years of growing up around a pastor like that who was saved out of a reckless and, use the word, insane lifestyle as a sailor, a drunken brawler, who was converted by the grace of God, life radically changed, who lived his life to the fullest for the glory of God and never, he was just like the Apostle Paul, never got over the fact that God saved him from what he saved him from and was never embarrassed to talk about his past because he had been delivered from so very, very much. Folks, if we're going to capture the heart of generosity that liberates the church and sets us free from the bondage of materialism, we need to get our arms around God's grace. And it is central to this passage of Scripture. Generosity flows from deep joy and gratitude. Secondly, rich generosity and abundance of giving is enabled by God. Now, when you look at the word that's used here for grace in these three passages of Scripture, it ties in very closely to the word charisma, where we get our word charismatic or gifts from. Okay, Paul is attributing the generosity of the churches in Macedonia to the gracious, sovereign work of God inside of them by the work of the Spirit. Okay, so over and over again, he identifies the wellspring or source of their generosity as the grace of God that has been manifested by the sovereign work of the Spirit within that is producing lasting change in their relationship to their resources. And it's very, very powerful how Paul just identifies this. This spiritual gift of giving is enabled by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Now, of this enablement, let me say this. This enablement, I believe, is to be pursued by all Christians and is the unique gift of some Christians. Okay? You get back to Romans chapter 12, and I believe it's about verse 8. Paul's talking about the gifts that have been given to the church in Rome. And there he says, those that give... And he's talking about spiritual gifts. If you speak, if you give, if you show mercy, if you lead, whatever it is. And when he talks about giving, he says, if your gift is giving, do it generously. The idea is this. If your gift is giving, do it abundantly. But we don't want to go away from this text saying that, okay, there are people in the church who have the gift of giving and there are the rest of us who don't. 
No, because in this text, it's clear that Paul is compelling the whole church and motivating the whole church to a generous lifestyle. While recognizing that some people have an abundance from God and are given a unique capacity and burden to give, all Christians are to participate in this act of giving. It is to be pursued by all Christians, and it is the unique ministry of some Christians. So it is enabled by God. Number three. Generosity is not related to how much you possess. And this should be for every Christian a relief. The fulfillment of the command to be generous with your resources is not related to the bottom line in your personal portfolio or bank account. I want you to notice how Paul describes this situation. Verse 2, he says, They gave in an overflowing way out of their extreme poverty. My question is, how much money did these people have? I think the answer is very clear. They were barely getting by and could be accused by Paul before the church in Corinth of being incredibly rich and generous. Barely getting by, yet generous. You do not have to be a wealthy person to practice biblical generosity. The people in Macedonia did it out of deep poverty. Many Christians live with the false assumption. The false assumption is this, and I think this is just true in America. When I have more money, I will what? Give more money. I I won't ask you to raise your hands. I was just about to, but I won't. How many of you have ever thought that? If I had more money, I, I, here's what we do. Let's be truthful. If I had the money that so-and-so has, I would be more generous than them. May God help us. May God help us. Because in saying that, you're defying the words of Christ. Here's what he said. He who is faithful with a little will be faithful with much. He who is faithful with a little will be faithful with much. You know what I believe? I believe most American Christians live a lie. We think that when we get our pills paid, our college loans paid, our this and that paid, our kids through college paid, while people are dying and going to hell. And we're okay with it. We're okay with living our lavish lifestyle, taking care of us and ours. While there are people in the world who have never heard or people in our sphere of influence who don't have enough. And we, in a very cold and calloused way, assume that if I had more, I would give more. Folks, it's a lie. It's a lie. And to believe that is to defy the words of Christ and... It is to ignore reality in the country that you and I live in. Here's the bottom line. People that earn up to $20,000 in America give 4 to 6% of their revenue to charity. Up to 20000 please hear this. And it's not the people on welfare that do this. It's the people that work. They give up 4 to 5%. Those that earn twenty. dollars 
to 30,000 a year give 2.8%. Those that earn 30 to 50,000, we start get close to home here, give 2.7. Do you notice something's happening? With increased income, what's happening? Giving is plummeting. Those that earn 50 to 75,000 in America give 2.5%. Those that earn 75 to 100 dual income families only give 2.4%. While the poorest of the poor give 4.6%. Do you believe the lie? That if I had more, I would be more generous. I would give more. Generosity in America is not the practice of the wealthy and the better off. And it is likely that it is not the practice of many of us. The bottom line is that there is no direct correlation between pay increases and charitable contributions. In fact, the opposite is fundamentally true. Mom and Dad, I'm concerned about this for us. I'm concerned about what our lifestyle says to our children. About what it takes to be happy, to have enough. Young people, I want to say this to you. Start early. And I, when I say young people, I mean people that are 48 and below. Okay? It's assuming I'm old, okay? If you don't break the bondage of materialism young, you will never break it. And what that bondage will take from you is life's greatest joy. It will cause you to think, contrary to what the Apostle Paul thought and contrary to what my pastor thought, it will cause you to think, that if I have more, I'll be happier. And if I have more, I'll be more generous. Strike that serpent on its head. Because that is not the biblical perspective on possessions. It's not. May God help us to break free from the bondage, from the joy-stealing attraction of material possessions. May we see it for what it really is. Generosity, a, and what I want you to notice is this. The people in Macedonia were generous and joyful. And here's what I found. They always go together. They always go together. Materialism and joy never go together. They do not travel the same road. So start early. Mom and dad, encourage your kids to do what God willing you are doing. Do not hypocritically talk to them about what they should do. When you don't do it yourself, they will see right through it. And you will destroy their desire to give. Don't pour out on them so richly and generously and lavishly because everybody else does it and they deserve it. They don't deserve it and they don't need it and by and large, they don't want it. They want you. 
They want a relationship. And you can show to them a rich generosity that is not based on possessions. It's rooted in a love for Christ who has changed your life. Uh, Number three. I didn't mean to go on that long on that point, but number three. And it happens to be verse three. Notice what Paul says. I testify. Now, here here Paul's like called before a judge. Hey, talk about the generosity of the Macedonians. And Paul's like, I I swear that this is the truth. And, And I just love this, how he sets this up. He says, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now, let that sink in for a minute. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. What does that mean? I, I don't know. I don't think I've ever done that. I, I'm not even sure if I know what that means. I mean, I do. Okay, I'm being a little bit, bit sarcastic. I, I know what they mean. They gave more than they could afford to give. Husband and wife looked at each other and said, if we give this, we may not be able to provide for our kids tomorrow, but overwhelming joy welled up in rich generosity. Persecution ignoring joy welled up in rich generosity. But we'll give it anyway. Folks, that's what captures the attention of the world that we live in. That kind of self-giving that defies explanation, that is not rooted in how it changes your life and brings joy to you. That's the kind that comes from guilt, that, oh, I think I have too much, therefore I need to give a little more away so I can feel better about what I keep. These people gave according and beyond. They gave more than they could afford, which is to say, number four in your notes, generosity will always be characterized by sacrifice and risk. Always. Sacrifice and risk will characterize rich generosity. They exceeded their resources in their giving. They gave more than they, in America, they gave more than they should have. Here's a question for you. If people saw how much you give to the work of God and to the needs of people that have needs, would they be surprised? Because here's my conviction. They should be. They should say, wait, you give that much? Why? Because the average person in America that earns between seventy-five and 100000 gives 2.5% of, their give, of the, what they earn to the needs of others. That's what they give. Hopefully they would look at our checkbook and say, you give that much? How can you live without that? How can you afford? Okay, I mean, that, that's the way this text is written. Beyond their ability. Why? Because they had a joy in Christ that they would not let die under the blanket of material possessions. They would not let their stuff block out the light of Christ in their life. So it was characterized by sacrifice and risk. Their joy affected the amount that they gave and the attitude with which they give it. That's the bottom line here. They loved Christ so much. They so lived in His grace and enjoyed his rich blessings in their lives, that it affected their attitude and the amount that they gave. And that's a quote from someone that I studied. Both were affected, so that the pastor didn't have to get up and twist arms. Sacrificing a risk should be part of the Christian experience. That's what Jesus says. He says, if you're going to follow me, take up the cross. Well, where's that going to go? 
Well, I can tell you this, taking up the cross isn't going anywhere good. Well, not from a human perspective. But it will be the place of joy. Second half of verse 3. And this, I, I find Paul here to be operating in the realm of the stunned. Second half of verse 3. He says, entirely on their own. What does that mean? Entirely based upon what the Spirit of God, who brought grace into their hearts by God's sovereign purpose, what that was saying within them, caused them to well up in rich generosity. Well, think about that. Do you, do you in relationship to your given, giving, listen to the voice of God? Do you say, God, okay, here's an abundant blessing you dropped into my lap. I had this happen to me recently. And I'm like, I have plans. I have things I want to do with that money. Unexpected. From something 35 years ago. Embarrassingly, my first thought is, hmm, I have things I want to buy. Things that I've wanted that I couldn't do because my wife is disciplined. And I wanted to. The first thought in my mind was not what it should have been. First thought in our mind should not be, how much should I give? I'm going to twist you in a different direction. Ask this question. How much does God want me to keep? That's not fun. It's not even fair to ask that question. How much does God want you to keep? So we get it wrong. We're thinking in terms of percentages, and we're working from the bottom up. Maybe we need to work from the top down. That's how these people operated. They <clears throat> entirely on their own, and then listen to verse 4. They urgently pleaded. Who are they? People in severe affliction and in deep radical poverty. And they are begging out of their pit of despair, saying, Paul, please let us help the people in Jerusalem. You know what Paul's probably thinking? They deserve a break. Their extreme poverty should be an excuse for them to, they should get a break. They shouldn't have to give. And he's thinking, he's going to pass them by, and they're like, oh, no, no. You don't pass us by. We want to have a part in what God is doing there. And yes, we have deep poverty and we have severe affliction. But it will not dampen our capacity to enjoy blessing the cause of Christ. And Paul's, Paul, he says, they begged us for the opportunity. Why did they beg? Probably because Paul said, hey, you've done enough. It's okay. There are other people who, have more who can do this work. And they're saying, oh, no, you will not disregard us. You will not kick us to the curb on this. We will participate. Folks, let that sink in. Let that sink in. Their giving, number five, was characterized by passion. It was a passionate pursuit. Entirely on their own, they begged for the privilege of giving. They were not exempted from that responsibility by their extreme poverty, and they knew it. Paul's like, oh, no, no, they begged to differ with the Apostle Paul and said, we want this privilege. Two words are used in this text. 
verse in verse 5. And if I look like I'm looking down at my text real closely, I am. It's because I love the Bible, okay? It's actually because I can't see, okay? Part of old age. Okay, listen to what he says. He said, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of, and I want you to get these next two words, of sharing in this service to the saints. Okay, they felt a special obligation to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Two words are used in the text. This fellowship or sharing in the service. The word fellowship is the Greek word. We get our word fellowship. The koinonia word, you've heard that probably. And then you've heard the word deacon. Okay, the, the, the koinonia of diakonos, the fellowship or sharing in service. In table waiting. They begged for an opportunity to join with the church in Jerusalem. To fellowship with them in their suffering. Does this sound familiar? Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I want to know him. And what? The fellowship of his suffering so that I can become like him. Folks, there is no mistaking as you read this passage of Scripture that the church in Macedonia was mirroring the Savior who gave up everything to enrich them, and they knew it. They knew that the Savior impoverished Himself so that they might become rich, and they never got over it. I think this is the secret to all Christian generosity. If you get over the fact that God, by His grace, has redeemed you, and totally forgiven you by the blood of someone who set aside everything in heaven and came to earth. And you know what he did? He who created everything borrowed everything. Look at the life of Christ. He borrowed everything. He had to borrow a donkey. He had to borrow a grave to be, to be buried in. He was so self-effacing. And so giving that when he came, he made no demands. He did not exercise his rights as Lord and demand what he deserved. He set it aside. And that is exactly what this church is doing. May we look at their example and be like them. May we be like this church who out of deep poverty express themselves in rich, abundant, superlative generosity. I've traveled the world a little bit by the grace of God. And I have observed something that I've heard missionaries say my whole life. They've always said that people in third world countries who have nothing are so amazing in their generosity. I've had the privilege of being humbled by that generosity. First time it happened to me, was in a foreign country called North Carolina. I was planning a church. I was a student at college, and I was working with the, the head of the ministerial class. And we worked amongst the poor of North Carolina. You can't deny those people the privilege of helping you. I came from abundance compared to most of them. They would, simply because we were there to tell them about Christ and to teach them the word of God, they would lavish on us 
to the level of embarrassment and sit there with a big grin on their face, happy that they could make you happy. Rich generosity that was just erupting like soda out of a shaken bottle. Uncontainable. I have been to uh, Indonesia and been treated. Last year when I was there, I was treated. It was, I kept saying to them, this is embarrassing. How they poured out love in India. Uh, the incredible desire on the part of impoverished people to bless. I, you, you just wanted to go like this all the time. They're like, no, you don't understand. I don't need anything. Is what you just, you just kept wanting to say. And they wanted to give you gifts. And it's like, no, I don't. They would not be denied. They begged the opportunity. I found that it's consistent with Christians around the world. When I was in Colombia in the year 2006, I was stunned by the generosity of the people of Colombia taken to this place that was to us a dump. To them it was a retreat. They cooked over stuff you shouldn't cook over and served me stuff that I shouldn't have eaten. But I'm going to tell you something. You couldn't deny it. You couldn't. Here's a question I have for you. Is, and Randy Alcorn puts it this way in his book, The Treasure Principle. He says, is that smile on their face fake? They give you that meal, the very best of their very best, even though it's cooked over dung as in India, dung logs. I shouldn't have eaten that stuff. But you couldn't say no. I mean, I got away from those meals as often as I could with my tuna fish jar and my crackers. I did that as much as I possibly could. I would have been, I would have been devastated if they found me eating that stuff that I brought. I would have been devastated. Because I know I would have been taking away from them a privilege. So my friend Chris and I would walk off the compound where it wasn't safe so that we could eat food that was safe. I remember in Columbia, they climbed the tree and pulled mangoes, you know, fresh mangoes. They climbed all the way up there risking their life so that they could bless you. I hate fruit. <laughs> they opened up this thing called cocoa. I don't even want to tell you what that looks like. And you had to eat it in that grateful. Like it's not a polite to stick cocoa. It looks like Vaseline with seeds in it. They stick their fingers in and they want you to, like, oh, Lord, help me. Okay. <laughs> if you deny it, you would steal the greatest joy. You know what the greatest joy was? Out of profound poverty that I could not get, I cannot get my arms around the poverty. I can't. I live in a place where if you work hard, you get more. That's where I live. They don't live there. And they, they would beg. I'm like, no, no, no. I think that water bottle's refilled. My life's at risk if I drink that. Okay, there I did deny him, okay? I, I'll admit. But with the stuff that was cooked, I said, okay, Lord, I didn't do it often. I did it as little as possible. But please grasp the fact that around the world, there is a, <laughs> there is a joy that is deeper than the joy that our material possessions produce. And it is free from anxiety it's free from concern about it breaking down. 
or the value dropping in the market, guess what? That you can live free from all that. There are people in our world that live free from the concern about their job who have cast themselves on the mercy of God and out of response to his grace that is meeting their needs, food, shelter, and clothing, rich generosity. I just, here's my question. What would happen if... What would happen if our offerings got to a place where we, did, we don't need it? We don't need it to meet the needs of this ministry. It's more. What a, what a glorious place that would be. If we would have to sit around and talk, hey, we've got to go find some needs that we can meet. Because God has made it clear. He's met all of ours. That's why I like establishing a budget. Because everything that comes in, in, in above it can be used for other purposes. May we become so generous that we are just in this way changed because generosity does not require great wealth. And I'm just going to stop with number six this morning. The last thing is, is verse five. Follow along with me. Paul says, they did not do as we expected. And the question is why? They didn't do what we expected. Okay, Paul. Sounds like they're doing pretty good. He says, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. And then the next phrase is fascinating. In keeping with God's will. Now, when you read that phrase in Scripture, that should get your spiritual attention. In keeping with God's will. Well, what is God's will? Well, it's what he hopes will happen. I don't think so. I think God says in Isaiah 46, I say my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. Then what is God's will? I believe in this text, Paul saying that the churches in Macedonia know that they're in Christ by the will of God. They know that they are in poverty by the will of God. They know that they are in severe suffering by the will of God. And they know that they are to give themselves wholly to God according to His will. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Give yourselves to God. And they know that giving to meet the needs of destitute brothers and sisters in other places was the will of God. So Paul can say, they did not do what we expected. They first gave themselves to God. And then to us, in keeping with God's will, they completely release themselves to us and to the purposes of God. To God first and then to others. And all of that is preceded by personal sacrifice and self-giving. Their giving, therefore, number six, is a personal giving. They did it because they knew it was the plan of God. And they did it because they knew that it was the best way that they could imitate the love of their Savior. I mean, isn't the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, and isn't the core of it that God so loved the world that he gave? Isn't that the bedrock of what we believe? That Christianity at its foundation on the basis of its founder is about a self-sacrifice that benefits many. It is about a man who became utterly impoverished. So that I could have the hope of heaven. 
I think about the Apostle Paul. I think about Paul in prison, and the threat is, Paul, you know what? We're going to take your life. If you don't shut up, we're going to end your life. That's the, you're giving us no choice. You know what Paul says to them? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. How would you like to be the executioner of that guy? Thank you very much. I love life. I love the blessings that God has poured into my life. Had a lot of fun the last few days with family and friends. On Tuesday night, I spent three hours with people I haven't seen for over 20 years. Scores of people I have not seen for 20 years. I realized how richly blessed I am. It was at the funeral of the pastor who I came to know Christ under saw friends who came to Christ under him when I was in high school. And I watched their life just take a totally different trajectory. Saw all kinds of change for the glory of God. I, I came home Tuesday night I, with a mix of humility and gratitude. Spending time with people that know and love Christ who are committed to the cause. Uh, Friday night, I think it was Friday night, I was at Applebee's. And there was a slow trickle of young people that had been through our church. Some of them are here this morning. I was there acting young at 10 o'clock, getting half-price appetizers, by the way, from wondering what I was doing <laughs> with my wife and my daughter, Erica. I spent most of this week seriously amazed because we are so rich. We are so rich. I am, I am so grateful that the grace of God reached down and touched a man named Elmer Robert Jordan. <laughs> Changed his life. He moved to my town and told me about Christ and put me in a sphere of influence. I, I have hundreds of people at home that would stand up for me just because they grew up with me, not because there's anything special about me. And they have me, and, and it's, and then I just, I saw that bigger thing. My home church was 2,000 people in 1970. I saw that bigger thing in a smaller way in our own church family the other night, and I was just like, we are so blessed. And folks, here's the bottom line. When that blessing floods over you, when you understand that this is all owing to the will of God, not a group of people that made the right choice. But the Spirit of God came and exposed us to the gospel of grace and caused it to make sense, caused dead people to become sensitive to their sin and drew us to himself and made it possible for us to have, to die as gain. How can we possibly be stingy? How can we not be generous? How can we not contemplate they gave beyond what they could afford that's going to haunt me that's going to haunt me what is that going to look like in my what's that going to look like in your life and folks i think what emerges out of this when it says they first gave themselves to the lord 
I think the bottom line is this. Their financial giving was not a substitute for personal commitment. Please hear what I'm saying. They did not assume that their check writing was a substitute for personal commitment. It is easy for some people to cut a check. It relieves guilt. It makes them feel better. It's not what God's talking about. True, welling up generosity is always about personal sacrifice and commitment. Dad, can I give you a hint? Your kids don't want your paycheck. They want you. They need you. They may think they want that stuff. They tell you they need it, and you're smart enough to tell them they don't. But what they really need is you. And what the church of Christ really needs is you. And I'm convinced of this. Giving will follow personal surrender. Always. Always. You can look at your checkbook and understand your heart. My pastor was so radical that when he did premarital counsel or marital counseling, he told people, I will not counsel you unless me let, you, let me see your checkbook. Oh, it sounds very wise to me. I've never done it. But Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It gives insight. It is possible to give gifts and keep yourselves at a safe distance from the cause of Christ and the work of God. I close with this question. Who are you giving yourself to? Personally. Whose life are you investing in generously from your time, from your, the, the base where you live? Do you open that thing up and let people in? Do you realize that it is a God-given resource to make a difference in His kingdom? That all of it belongs to Him. And should be used to that end. May God cause us, as a church, to gaze upon the cross. And I just draw your attention to verse 9 to close. Paul says, I say all of this because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, so that you, through His impoverishment, might become rich. If you treasure the example of generous people and you treasure the example of Christ, you will not patronize them by singing songs to them and paying compliments to people like Alan Peggy Horton. It is very easy to admire the life of Alan Peggy Horton and not imitate their life. It is very easy to look at the cross of Christ and to sing praises about what Christ did without a personal commitment. And I am convinced that God wants more. God wants and deserves and asks for more. And when we put our arms around the blessings that will cause us to spontaneously become generous givers, I believe our church will change. Because we will not be held in bondage to the things of this world that are passing by. We will have the privilege of practicing a joy-filling, God-honoring, christ treasuring and exalting generosity until the day that he comes. And here's what I think will happen. I think our church will be characterized by a lot more joy than sorrow and concern and anxiety. 
because we will be set free from the bondage of temporal things so that we may lay hold of eternal things for the glory of God. And if you've never trusted Christ, here it is very simple. Have Christ, be rich, and filled with joy. Reject Christ. Eternity without him forever. Missing the greatest joy in life that could be yours through the power of his cross. Father, if there is this morning with us